0: Thank you so much for being here for what I hope and believe is the next series of studies that the Holy Spirit is giving to us. As you know, and I've said this several times, and I think we'll get through the lesson today. If we don't, we'll continue next week, right? As we said before, we must in whatever category of life, it doesn't matter, be being led by the Holy Spirit. We must acknowledge our need, not only for the presence of the Holy Spirit in a general way, but in the specific, revealing, communicating ministry of the Holy Spirit To me and to you in any and every particular area, activity, instant in our life. I think it's a heretical thought. This is my opinion now. A heretical thought to say, well, I don't need to ask the Holy Spirit about this and that because he's given me an understanding or mind to decide these things. You know, you've right? You understand what I'm saying? There's certain things that I really don't need the Holy Spirit to do because, you know, he's given me intelligence and background. And yet, when you look at the Son of God himself, Jesus says in John five nineteen, I do... Huh, what? No, what does nothing mean? Nothing. I don't have a thought. I don't have an attitude. <clears throat> I do not make a decision. I do not have a word, etc., etc., that I do on my own because of the natural intelligence that God has given to me as the perfect, sinless man. And if this man lives 100% dependent upon the Holy Spirit, never using his own capabilities as the perfect man. But in his perfection of humanity, in his mentality, intellect, emotions, etc. Perfect. All of that is assigned to and submitted to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Would you agree with that? And that's a long dissertation to say once again hopefully what we're doing and everything that we're doing is led by the Holy Spirit and so we prayed and for the first time in a long time I had no idea where we're going I remember telling some of you I think I told Anna and a few of the ladies and some others you need to pray because I have no idea what we're going to be doing next and so about a week or two ago the Lord began to drop in my heart Do a study of the love of God. Oh, okay. Okay. And as it is always with God, I'm thinking we'll get right into it. Right into it. We're going to start talking about God's love. But here's what the Holy Spirit typically does before speaking about something, for instance, so significant and everything about God is significant equally. He must lay a foundation because of our lack of understanding and knowledge, correct? And so, thank you for being here. I think everyone received an email from me. Did anyone not receive an email from me about this class? You're not on the list some kind of way. You're not on the email list, so you need to get yourself on the email list. uh, Are y'all signing the uh, sign-in sheets? Well, then let Georgina know you're not on the email list because, you know, hopefully that's going to be a way that we're going to communicate. So let's start. Father, Father, once again, as in every aspect of your word, we are being taken into the depths of who you are, of how you are. Father, we know and we believe that the most critical, essential, central, necessary knowledge that we have is to know you. Father, we remember the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.10, this man who so obviously knew you, and yet he said, oh, that I may know him. So, Father, this morning, as in everything but with this Particular series as we begin another one. Would you use it to reveal yourself to our minds, to our hearts. So that who you are may not only be a growing, tangible, relational reality. But that who you are may be a demonstrable reality through us, as we relate to the world and to one another and even relate to ourselves. So, Father, this morning, as only you can and as only you will, Father, we're asking, as we always do and as we absolutely need to, speak by your Spirit, teach us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this morning we begin to consider the some of the meanings and the implications of God is love. Now you see that terse statement. You know what terse means, don't you? Short statement. You see that terse statement, God is love, in two places in 1 John. You see it in 1 John 4, chapter 4, verse what? 8, and then it's repeated in verse 16. So if you double eight, you have 16. So that's what we're talking about. That's the context of the study that we'll be beginning this morning. Now, as we know, love is one of the attributes of God that we consider so fundamental to our relationship with God as our Father. But it is not the only attribute. And we must say this, we must be very careful when we say these things. Love is not the Most significant attribute of God. It's not the least significant attribute of God. Because one of the things, hopefully, within this and next week, we're going to see is that the attributes of God are equally and comprehensively and immediately all of the same significance. Do we understand that? We can't say, well, I think the love of God is this. No, I think the power of God is that. Every aspect of who God is in his own being intrinsically, according to his essence and nature, is equally, eternally, and comprehensively significant. There's not one attribute that's more important than the other. We may experience an attribute here or there that we understand or we feel is more important because it's doing something in us that we are aware that needs to be done in us. And so at that moment, this becomes the most important thing that God is doing. We understand that from a personal human perspective, but not from the perspective of God. So as we talk about the love of God, we're talking about that which is, do you know what I mean by indigenous? To God as essential to his nature. So this means that in order to better understand the meaning and the implications of God as love, 1 John 4, 8, or 16, in order to understand the meaning and the implications of God as love, we must have a more informed understanding of the attributes of love. Why? When we speak about the attributes of God, what we're speaking about is that which comprises the very essence of God's nature and character. The attributes of God are not those aspects or truths about the character of God that are added to God that He has acquired over the centuries, but the attributes of God are those qualities, if you would, that cause God to be who He is, who are of the very essence, the very nature, and the very character of God. And so, why do we why worry about this? Because What we do as human beings, and it's natural thinking, and all of us do it. Why? Because we're human beings, therefore we do it. We categorize aspects of the nature and the character of God. We categorize them. And we put one in one category and another one, this, or that, and this is more important, and I need this more than I need that right now. And that's an inaccurate understanding of who our God is. And as a result, what is happening here is that we are bringing this ascendant triune majesty down to ourselves and to where we live and imposing upon him what we understand in our very infinite and limited way, what should be the way he is. Have you ever heard, well, if God is God, he's going to do this. Haven't we ever heard these things? And so we need to see at least some of this in a hopefully better way in order to understand the love of God that exists within God in relation to every attribute of God. Since love is not something that is singled out from among the others, but is part of the others equally as they are a part of love. So the attributes of God are those qualities that collectively and equally, and I should say simultaneously, constitute the very essence of the being of God. Now, I know some of you think, well, why are we talking about that? Again, it is essential to have a better understanding of, that who, of who God is in himself, so that when we pursue, for instance, the study of God's love, we are not looking at God's love in isolation to the other attributes of God, but we are looking at God's love in, within the context of the other attributes of God. Because all of us have heard sometimes, well, if God is love, he wouldn't do this. If God is love, or if he knew that, God wouldn't. How many times do we do that ourselves? And so it's a major misunderstanding of who God is. You see, this means that each attribute informs every other attribute. And that each attribute is fully present in every other attribute. Although each attribute is a distinguishing attribute of God. Does that make sense? How can we understand this? We don't. And so every attribute of God, which is a distinguishing attribute, is contained within every other attribute and is informed by every other attribute. But that doesn't mean that we cannot have some understanding of the omnipotence of God or the omniscience of God. We can, but not in isolation. Because there's no way to understand any particular attribute of God in isolation from the others. The only way to understand any attribute of God is to understand it within the context of all the attributes of God, at least that we are going to discuss. And there are many attributes. You know, God has infinite attributes, and we're not going to discuss infinite attributes, but at least the few that he's made, that that he's revealed to us. So what this means is that God cannot be who he is. He cannot be who he is in himself apart from any one of his attributes. Nor can God be who he is in himself with a diminution. Do you know what diminution means? What? A diminishing of any particular attribute. And we'll see why in a few minutes. God possesses in himself every attribute simultaneously and comprehensively. All of this is to say that when we speak about God's love, we must do so within the context of all of his attributes. And the fundamental attribute, when I say fundamental, I don't mean the only one that's of significance. But I believe this is the one that probably is the best place to begin. You could argue with me and that would be fine. The attribute, I think, that needs to be discussed first, and I just felt this is the way the Lord was leading me, is what is called, and I hope you have it in your notes, the aseity of God. Do you see that word, A-S-E-I-T-Y, the aseity? How many of you have heard of that word, aseity? About three or four of the eggheads in here. What's the matter with you people? Where have y'all been living? I'm talking about the eggheads. The aseity of God Now, that's a very good term, and we need to sometimes learn theological terms. The aseity of God. The word aseity has to do with God's self-existence as God. A-say, A and then S-E, from himself, from himself. So the word aseity means self-existence. And I think when I say it that way, you say, oh, okay, I understand that. At least we basically understand what that means. So when we say the aseity of God, what are we speaking about? God's what? Self-existence. God's aseity means that God has always been that he is uncaused life in himself. That he has not even caused himself to come into being. That God is life in himself. That God is uncaused. That nothing external to God has caused God to come into being. That at no time, and even the word time, is the wrong term. But we have to put it in some kind of terms so we understand. And every time we use any finite language dealing with God, we're always in trouble because we've always already missed something of the truth of God. Correct? Because how can we talk about an infinite God with finite language? So we foul up, but we have to do what God has given us to do. And so the reason that God exists is why? Why does God exist? Because he exists. Now, we don't think like this, typically, do we? Why, why does God exist? Steve, why does God exist? Because He exists. Well, what kind of answer is that? You remember in Deuteronomy 7 when Moses is telling the people of Israel, let me tell you why God loves you. Remember in verses 7 and 8? I mean, why does God love you? Because He exists. Why is God kind to you, Ricky? Because He exists. Why does God minister to you? Because he exists. Why anything about God? Why? Because he exists. And you see what this begins to do. Why is God love? Why? Because he is self-existent. Why does God say anything? Because he exists. You see, the whole issue has to do with not the activities of God necessarily because the activities of God reveal the eternal existence of God and even that word eternal is not a good word to talk about which we'll talk about in just a moment. And so what does the aseity of God mean? Simply put, what? God exists. Now, I believe, and you've heard me say this many times, the most <clears throat> startling, amazing, dramatic, august, magnificent, incredible, etc., 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 verse in the entire Bible. The verse that comprehends everything of the Bible. The verse without which we're not going to understand the Bible is Genesis 1 1. Now, you may say, Well, that's where he is. Nope, nope. And so, what do we have in Genesis 1 1? Well, there it is, too. And it's going to be. And so, I hope, hopefully, the Holy Spirit in me hopes that you're going to. That he is going to elevate our most precious verse to another place. That this verse is the most precious verse in the entire Bible. And so how does it begin? The first four words of Genesis. We're not going to finish today. The first four words of Genesis give us I think the most fundamental, essential truth about God that there is, the first four words of Genesis, give us the most fundamental truth about this being who declares himself as God. So let's look at the first three words of these first four words. What are the first three words? In the beginning. Now, in the beginning is a Hebrew idiomatic phrase. You know what I mean by that? Let me give you an example of an idiomatic phrase. Where you at? And when you say to someone, where you at, they kind of look at you like, what, what, what do we mean? They're not from New Orleans. Where you at means what? How are you? What's happening? Where you at, dude? It's, it's a general term. It's an idiom. It's a way of saying something that the phrase itself doesn't convey the real meaning. And so in the beginning is a Hebrew idiomatic phrase. It means before anything was, God is. The Bible begins... With the declaration and revelation of God's aseity. Do you see that? It doesn't begin about God is love and God is mercy and the, in, uh, the incarnate. It doesn't begin of anything like that. Where does it begin? God is et- not even eternal, but I'll talk about that in a moment. God is self-existent. Existence. He is uncaused. He always has been and he always will be. In fact, and there's a wonderful teaching by R.C. Sproul, talk about being and becoming. He is, if we're going to use the word being accurately, he is the only being. Everything else is a becoming. Why? Because you take a rock. I mean, let me get an example of a rock. Who will be our rock for us this morning? Okay, Rock, stand up. Anton. Everybody knows Anton, everybody. The ministry of Anton. This is a rock. Listen, watch, watch, watch. He's a rock. He really is a rock. Now, we know his wife would agree with this, but he's a rock. Is it correct to say that Anton is a becoming or Not. What do we mean by becoming? Change. Change. So we look at this rock. Is this rock absolutely, completely static? Or, thank you, rock. Or, is in this rock activity, even on a molecular level, change? Are you with me? Yes or no? Is there even infinitesimal change in that rock? So, is that rock a, a being or a becoming? It's a becoming. Who are we? We call ourselves human beings, but we're really human becomings. Why? Because there is change. Now, it may not be fast change or whatever, it may be we're going the wrong way change, but there's change. But God is the only being. And everything that has come into existence has been brought into the existence out of absolute nothing. In fact, before Genesis 1-1, there was no time and there was not even eternity because eternity is a function of what? Time. Time. Now, this we can't conceptualize. So before Genesis 1-1, there was no time. Everything, God was it. And he is, if you would, a static being. Meaning what? One in whom there is no change. And how long has he been around? Yes. 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 Now, we must see this because if we don't begin to see this a little more clearly. When we begin to talk about any of the attributes of God, especially the love of God, we begin to see the love of God in a context that has to do with events and changes and time and locality and situations and my behavior. Well, you're beginning to see something here. Yes or no? I need to know. If we don't locate every attribute, but specifically love because that's what we're talking about, within the aseity of God, God has no beginning and he has no ending. Therefore, every attribute of God has what? No beginning and no ending. God is uncaused in himself. Therefore, every attribute is what? Uncaused. God remains the same. And we'll talk about some of these in more detail. Therefore, every attribute is what? The same attribute without it changing as to its essentialness as an attribute of God. So as we do this and as we talk about just jumping ahead a little bit. Because you say, why is it important, Frank, that we talk about these things? Let's just get down to the issue and talk about love, brother. I want to talk about love. Well, if we talk about love disassociated from the very fundamental existence of God we will make love having to do with something about us and our actions and love then be, the love of God rather becomes something that is maybe capricious it is changeable it is you know here it is and there it is and what about that and did I lose it how can I do you understand this so in the beginning before anything was God don't say was. God what? God is. So why does God love us? Because he is. Why does God care for us? Because he is. How faithful will God be to us? Because he is. His aseity kind of comprehends, if you would, collects, I think, all of these attributes, properties, activities or whatever of God into one place where we can, I think, begin to understand a little better what this love of God is. So just for instance, and all I want is a hand raise if, if this is the truth, just the very little bit that we've said already. Have you had your definition of God's love expanded at all anybody in here do you see that when we understand all of it but I'm remember we're emphasizing one in particular not to the exclusion of others but we're talking about one that when we see God's love this way it begins to free us of fear of worry of doubt of incorrect questionings, it begins to liberate us and begins to fill us with confidence and assurance. So when someone says Jesus loves you and it is true because you've been saved, when we understand the aseity of God, what does that mean about Jesus' love? It means something bigger than it was before, perhaps. And then what is the second major? It's not in your notes, I don't think. I don't know where I am in the notes, but we'll figure it out. Genesis 1.1, I said, said what? Two critical, essential, and central truths about God. The aseity of God in the beginning and then the word God. I don't think it's in the notes so you may want to take a note on this up to you. The word God in the Hebrew is what? Somebody tell me what it is. Elohim. E-L-O-H-I-M. Yes, you may take a note on that. E-L-O-H-I-M. Elohim. It is a plural word. Plural. The singular is l e l is singular in the Hebrew, Elohim, so do you get this? He is what singular plural coach uh coach coaches thinking. Now we know how coaches are. you know as long as you win a football game, we don't care what else you know. He is what singular them is plural. Do you remember those things in English grammar? I told you to study. And so El is what? Singular. Elohim is plural. plural. So what is the next thing that is absolutely incredible and mind-blowing that we've learned in this statement, in the beginning, God? This God who is assay, self-existent, is a plurality. What does that mean? He is God, but then he's not God in the typical singular sense. But he's God in the most unique sense of all. Because all the gods of the world were singular. Each one of them was singular, correct? There may be 50,000 of them, but each one was a singular whatever, correct? But this God is a singularity in one way and a plurality in another way. And so we already immediately see that God is telling us in the very first four words of his book, I am eternal. I am the eternal God using our language, but he's not even eternal in that sense, correct? I am the A and S-E, the self-existent God And I'm also a plurality in myself. Now, you may not find that astounding. But when someone says to you, it's a fairy tale. These things were just stories dreamed up. Now, are there questions about the first 25 verses of Genesis chapter 1? Yes. (laughs) Remember the six days? Yes. (laughs) How do I... What, what, what word I want? Put this with the creation. How, what's that word I want? How do I what? Resul, what reconcile? How do I reconcile six days of creation and evolution? I don't know. If you can reconcile the two, you need to help me. I'm serious. I don't. I don't know anyway. Andy, maybe you know and you can tell us. But to me, that's not the primary issue. The primary issue in Genesis. in these first four words is the truth that carries itself all the way through to the end and is consummated in Revelation 21 and 22. That who this assay plurality God, plural God if you would, is now in fellowship with a people. Now when you look at the time when this was written... Genesis, it was written in a time of polytheism. Do you know what I mean by polytheism? Poly means what? Many. Two or more, at least. Two or more. Two two is too many. There was no concept. Go do a comparative religion for yourself. There was no concept of a being who was assay. A being who was absolutely sovereign creator of all things because the gods were personal gods of locales of people in those areas you know you have a God of your group and you have a God of your group and that's God and all these gods are contending this was absolutely unheard of radical revelation so, when we read Genesis, we don't read it sometimes within the understanding of those people who are reading it. When they are reading this, this is crazy. Well, which God is he? Remember, and we're not going to get to this today. Which God are you? What have I just quoted Exodus three fourteen The Lord calls Moses to himself through the agency of the bush that is not consumed. A a symbol of the self-existent one through the self-existing fire in the bush. Come on, come on. A symbol of the self-existent one through the self-existing fire. Remember, it burned, but it yet was not what? Not consumed. The revelation is not so much about the bush. It's about the fire in the bush. Ah, that's what's going on here. That's what... And Moses said, I have to go find out about this thing. I've never seen self-existing fire, if you would. And he goes and the Lord said, hey, you're going down. I'm sending you to deliver the people out of Egypt. Remember that? And Moses has been raised in polytheistic Egypt. And so he asks in verses 13 and 14, well, which God are you? Now, remember the gods of this world, the polytheism of the ancient world. We've kind of come a long way now in, theology, in technology, but we have to remember where it was. They were all named in relation to something that existed in the creation. Are you with me on this? Every god was associated with something of the created order. So what does Moses expect? I'm sure some, a revelation of some god of something of the created order that he hadn't heard before. Probably. Correct? I don't know. So, who are you? When they ask me, who are you? Who is this God? Which God? What is your power? What is your nature? What is your purpose? How big and powerful are you? Because if we're going to be delivered, we need to know who you are. We're going to follow you. Who are you? Because we don't want to go out there and get stomped by somebody because we didn't understand you clearly enough. We need to know who you are. Who are you? And what does he say? In verse 14, he says, I am that I am tell them that I am have sent you what, what do you mean you are i mean Jody what does that mean i am you are i mean you was you will be or you what what do you mean i i've never heard of that before it was a declaration when god Delivers his people through Moses, he does so by first and fundamentally announcing his aseity. Do we see that? He doesn't begin with a lot of other things. He announces his aseity, and then within the concept and understanding, and upon the foundation, if you would, of his aseity, then he begins to move and reveal and talk about himself and his people, all within the concept of, I am. I am. I am. And so when we speak about the love of God, where must we locate it? We too quickly locate the love of God in me. Come on. Are you with me on this? We too, too quickly evaluate the love of God according to what? What's happening where? To me. We too quickly want to define the love of God in relation to what I experience and what's going on with me and how I am doing, don't we? And that's idolatry. And so you can begin to see that when the Bible talks about God's love being shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us in Romans 5, 5. God is not talking about just some feelings and emotions. But he's talking about the very attribute. All the attributes. But singling out this particular one for a purpose at that point. Of his aseity. This love. And this is the love of God. That is now dwelling in our hearts by faith if we are God's people. And this is the love of God that in no way can we, in any way, ever hope to duplicate. We are not called to try to love God or to duplicate his love or to do things for him. We are called to be yielding to and cooperating with the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit begins to manifest the various activities and results and whatever of this, the love of this assay God in us. Let me just look where I am in the notes. Where am I? Oh, I did cover a little bit, didn't I? So we'll stop there today. But I want to send you away this way. Next week, I suppose, we'll talk about some of the attributes of God. But ponder this week. The love of God, God's kind of love that is in keeping with his aseity. And when things go on in your life and the devil questions God's goodness and his mercy and his love and his kindness, etc., Remember, God is love. That means as God is self-existent and uncaused, God's love also is what? Self-existent and uncaused as an attribute. And that's why God loves us. So what does he tell Israel in Deuteronomy 7, as I was going to say, and I went off to something else, 7 and 8? Why do I love you? Not because you're the big guys, because you're a small group. But here's the reason Yahweh loves you. Because he loves you. What kind of answer? What is he saying? I love you because I am. And that is the rock bottom assurance that we have. In Christ... As to his forgiveness, his acceptance, our security, our eternal life. Where is it located? In God's self-existence. Amen. So next week we'll talk some more.